We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thora. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is the co-founder of ECI Development that does real estate developments in Central America and the Caribbean. He has spoken at hundreds of international conferences about real estate, financing, and development. He has acted as a consultant to the Oxford Club, which gives counsel to real estate projects throughout Central America. And he was an expat in Nicaragua for the last 14 years and passionate about what opportunities the country has for expat entrepreneurs. Please welcome to the show, Mike Cobb. Mike, how are you doing? Hey, Mikkel, thank you. I'm doing great, and I appreciate being on the on the call with you today. Thanks for having me. It's amazing to have you here. Mike, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of talk us through your backstory? How did you end up in Nicaragua? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, I, I always like to tell folks it was by accident. Um, you know, when I was, uh, I graduated from college in uh, northwest Pennsylvania, and uh, back then in the mid-'80s, it was a very, very depressed time. The steel industry had collapsed, so I moved to the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and with a degree in political science, that seemed logical to me. But I ended up uh, kind of falling into a computer company. It was uh, a company that made PCs. Uh, we did a lot of white box manufacturing. And so for about 12, almost 13 years, I was in the D.C. area, northern Virginia, uh, working with a PC company. But somewhere along the line, about 93, uh, a good buddy of mine from college, uh, my, the co-founder of ECI, Joel Nagel is his name, uh, but anyway, he, he he became a lawyer, and he called me up one one Wednesday morning and said, hey, Mike, what, what are you doing tomorrow and, and through the weekend? And I said, I don't know. Why? And he said, yeah, I got this extra ticket to Belize. I was supposed to take this doctor down with me, and, and he can't go. Do you want to go to Belize? And I'm, I'm just like, yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, I'm sitting at my desk scratching my head going, where's Belize? <laughs> Somehow I knew that was going to be the question. Somehow I knew that was going to be the question. <laughs> So, uh, well, you know, back when uh, back when I was in high school uh, and, and uh, I guess 81, I, I graduated high school in 82, but but we studied British Honduras. So if he'd said British Honduras, I, I might have had a clue where it was, but Belize, I had no idea where it was. Anyway, so I went down with him in, in the uh, uh, fall in 93 and, and fell in love with the country. And he was going down, I don't know, four or five times a year. I said, I said Joel, next time you're going down, give me, give me a heads up. 
you know, a little more time. I'll come with you. And so, I don't know, a few months later, he, he did. He said, Mike, I'm headed back down to Belize in a few weeks. You want to go? And of course, I said yes. And we went down and uh, he, he did his legal work. He was setting up uh, asset protection trusts for physicians. That was uh, a niche business that he had then and still has. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and we uh, ended up looking at real estate. We ended up buying a couple condos in 1994. Uh, and it was for vacation property, but it was also, it's interesting. It was, and, and I didn't really realize this, but somebody pointed this out to me about a year ago. They said, you mean to tell me that your very first rental property was outside the U.S.? And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, actually it was. Um, you know, I own rental properties now in the U.S. and outside the U.S., but my first one was outside the U.S. in Belize. And that was 1994. Uh, and, and, and this is interesting, uh, Mikkel, because you know, uh, being in the computer business and then, you know, Joel being a lawyer, uh, we're both very entrepreneurial. And, and what we saw, and, and, and maybe this segues into something later if you want to circle back to it, but, but what we saw was this hole in the marketplace because when we bought the condos, the developer offered us a substantial discount, and it was 20% actually, if we would make full payment, if we would wire payment for the full amount for the two condos. And and so we took him up on his offer and we got our 20% discount. And, uh, uh, and, and I remember it was, you know, we, we didn't think very much of it at, at the moment. We're excited about buying our condos, but I don't know, six, seven, eight months later, we're, we're laying by the pool and the developer, uh, Jim's his name, Jim comes by and, and we're just talking to him and, and, and we said, Jim, why aren't you finishing these buildings over here? Cause for whatever, six, seven, eight months, we'd seen these buildings kind of under construction, but barely nobody working on them most of the time. And he said, because, you know, I don't, I don't have a cash flow or something. And we said, what do you mean? I said, you build condos, you sell condos. And he said, yeah, but I have to finance most of the sales I make. And we pursued it a little bit further. And what we found out was, you know, no bank in Belize would lend a foreigner money. And no bank in the States or in Canada would lend money on, you know, with collateral in a foreign country, Belize specifically in this case. And so what was happening was it was a hole in the marketplace. Uh, you know, th there was no financing. And so these developers up and down the coast of, of Ambergus Key and other parts of Belize and throughout Central America, actually, but at the time we didn't understand that. We just knew Belize were, were sitting on all this paper. And so we just asked Jim, I'll never forget, we're just laying there in the lounge chairs by the pool and Jim's standing there. And Joel looks up at him. He goes, hey, Jim, uh, would you sell us your paper for, for a 20% discount? And Jim immediately looked, he goes, Absolutely. I mean, it was just like that. And and so, uh, you know, we, we, Joel and I spent the rest of that trip down there kind of noodling on the idea of, you know, how we could go out and put together some money uh, to buy mortgage notes in, you know, in Belize on Ambergris Key. And, and the interest rates were 12 to 14 percent. Generally, the terms were pretty short, you know, five to 10 year terms. And we were going to, you know, raise a bunch of money. And that's what we did. We, uh, I went out to some buddies in the computer business. He went out to a bunch of his uh, his legal clients, and we uh, bought a bunch of paper. Uh, we raised a couple million bucks, bought a bunch of paper, and did it again the second time. But we kind of ended up tapping out the you know the friends and family network for for the for the money. Uh, so we actually applied for a banking license uh, in 2000. Uh, we received it in 2003, and and we actually started a bank on Ambergris Key, Belize. Uh, it's really still a mortgage company, basically, but. Um, but but that was really how I got into the, the region was buying those condos and then starting the little mortgage company. Uh, in 1998, I left the computer business. Uh, full, I was full time in it. I left it. 
to pursue you know opportunities in Belize. In 1998, we bought a small resort on Ambergris Key that had gone into foreclosure. We knew about it because we'd done some financing of, of condos there. So we bought a small resort. Uh, my wife and I, Carol is her name, Carol and I moved to Belize uh, for about six months, uh, September through February of, uh, well, September of 98 through uh, February of 99. Uh, then um, in 2000, we bought a very, very large piece of property in Nicaragua. And in 2002, somebody had to move there for, uh, you know, the startup, right? Get down there, get a team set up, you know, hire people, you know, get it, get it going. And, and we, uh, we had moved from the D.C. area to about an hour and a half west of, of Washington, D.C., uh, to a little town in the, uh, the Shenandoah Valley. And, uh, and we, uh, we, we kept our home there. And, and we moved to Nicaragua for what we thought would be two, three years. Uh, and after about three years, we had the company set up. We had the chief operating officer hired. We had everything ready to go. And, and uh, Carol and I went out to dinner one night, and we, uh, uh, we, we, we really thought long and hard about this idea of, do we want to go back to our home? We, we had a 90-day clause for the renters. Um, or do we want to stay in Nicaragua? And uh, it was really obvious even before we had the dinner, but we're very conscientious people. We're very conscious people in the sense that we wanted to really think this through. And so we took a piece of paper and we wrote down every single reason to stay in Nicaragua and every reason we could think of to go back to the States. And and uh, the, the, the paper was down the front and onto the back for stay in Nicaragua. And it was maybe a third of the way down or go back to the States. And, and so we made a very conscious decision to stay in Nicaragua for then what we said was a while longer. Uh, and a while turned out to be 11 more years, Mikkel. And, and, and we stayed by choice and we went there for business. We stayed there by choice. And, you know, just like we were talking before we went live with the interview, I mean, you, you went to Abu Dhabi for, you know, what you thought would be a short period of time. And now you've been there for, for seven years. And, and I, I find that to be fairly typical of, of many expat experiences where people come sort of for a reason or, or come by accident, maybe, or whatever it is, but, but fall in love with what it means to be an expat at so many levels. You know, the, the glib answer is, you know, some, I, I was just in Phoenix at a realtor event and, and, and somebody said, well, you know, what do you miss most? And I said, the maid, and, and he, was a, he was a former expat and he laughed. He said, yeah, that's what we miss the most when we moved back to the States too. Um, and, and, and I think at, the, at sort of that glib level, that probably is the thing that most people miss if they've lived a place where they could have a full time maid, because it, it is a life enhancement, uh, as you know. I mean, it's absolutely it's <laughs> incredible life enhancement. Um, but, you know, at, at, at a whole nother level, one of the things that that now we're kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking through some of this question that you, you posed is, you know, it, it, there's this whole element of. I say freedom, uh, you know, Nicaragua, especially, I guess you can probably move to a country that's more rigid. If you move to Singapore, I'm sure that's pretty rigid in terms of, you know, freedom, but a country like Nicaragua, developing countries generally, uh, there's a lot more freedom. It's not a nanny state. Uh, you're able to do things that, you know, I mean, you're on your own kind of, but, but like it, nobody's out looking out for you. Nobody's telling you no to things because, they just don't have the resources or the time or the, or the inclination to do that. And, and I have to say, I enjoyed the freedom of living in Nicaragua at many levels that we, you know, we, we kind of feel a little bit hemmed in in the States from a, you know, I don't know, nanny state kind of feeling. I don't know how else to describe it, but you know, my girls, 
I'll give you one example. Like our girls would go, we'd go up to this place called the uh, Samoto Canyon. And, and, and I'm talking, you know, five, six, seven, eight year old. My daughters were, were little. I mean, we climb up on the rocks on the side of the canyon and jump into the river and, and, you know, and, and, and whatever. I mean, just we'd go see this volcano and, and literally you'd stand at the edge of the crater and there was this pipe in the ground that you would hang on to with one hand and you would lean out and kind of look over to see the lava at the bottom of this volcano, right? There's no rail, there's no nothing. It's a pipe in the ground. You hold on to it and you lean over and there's the lava, right? Yeah, and there's no uh, path going up for wheelchair access and someone standing at the bottom with a ticket booth and then someone else, you know, making sure that they're selling you crap, you know, halfway up. You just enjoy it for what it is and exactly. they're not worried about all these other safety procedures. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> it's refreshing. Yeah. And then we went to a little amusement park in southern Pennsylvania. I won't say which one, but, you know, and there was a rock. I don't know. It was kind of a small boulder right by the side. And and uh, my daughter went and sat on it. We were waiting. My wife and the other daughter in bathroom. I don't know what they were doing. They were somewhere. And so my one daughter hops up on this boulder. And I mean, she's like five feet above the ground. She's not very far above the ground. Right. And a security guard comes rushing over and tells her how she has to get off. And she kind of just looks at me. And she was, I don't know, little. Right. She was five, six years old. She kind of looks at me with this look like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, come on, honey, get off the, get off the boulder before the, you know, the security guard gets out his taser, you know? I mean, like, it, it, so those kinds of things are a lot harder to quantify and, and, and they don't, they don't come up in a short answer. Like you could have at a cocktail party, which is why the maid answer is such an easy answer, mm -hmm. right? It's a cocktail party answer, right? It's a quick answer. People get it. But I think at a, at a whole different level, uh, there are there are other answers that are probably more significant and more meaningful, and 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 we raised a couple daughters there, uh, and you know the the thing about that was we found that you know uh, Nicaragua specifically, but I'm 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 going to make this more general and say that I, it probably could have been Costa Rica, Panama, you know any of the you know the countries of Central and South America. Uh, it, it's a great place to raise children because of the there are strong conservative cultural values that are very family oriented and and, it, and it's not nearly as materialistic as uh the experience that we saw with our you know peer set back in the states and their kids so again there are probably some much deeper more significant things that that are you know positives about being an expat uh that, that we experience that are much harder to to put into short you know sound bites or whatever you want to call them um but they're significant so talk to me, what are some of those other things on the list? Like you've just mentioned some that, like you said, are non-quantifiable. What are some of the other things on the list that really made you want to stay in Central America? You know, I think cost of living is a big one. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, we're, we're fine. We're, we did, I did well in the computer business and we, we, we don't need or want for, for, you know, for cash flow or, or income, but we, it just doesn't sound crazy. But you cannot. I, I mean, a family. Of four, so we were a family of four, right? My wife and I had two daughters, and and the girls were in, you know, gymnastics and ballet. We went out to eat when we wanted to. We went to the movies, movies in English, and big comfy seats, just like a U.S. theater. You know, for two bucks for the ticket, and you know, the popcorn was another two bucks or something. I mean, it was. You could not spend. You could not rationally spend five thousand dollars a month. And you can waste money. You can go buy, you know, Ferragamo shoes every day, right? I mean, you spend as much money as you want, right? Because you can go buy Ferragamo shoes in Nicaragua. They're there, right? Mm -hmm. And Toomey and all that kind of stuff, right? But 
but to just sort of what I would call live a normal life, a family of four cannot spend $5,000 a month without wasting money. And it's probably a lot less than that. But I'm talking with all activities, private school. We sent our girls to the German school and then to a Nordic school for a few years. Um, you know, great educational programs, the ballet, all of those things. It, and, and so it's so inexpensive. We ate organic produce. We had a bag. I mean, this is incredible. We had a coffee sack, uh, whatever, those 90-pound kind of coffee sack of, of organic fruits and vegetables delivered from a farm where friends, it's a coffee farm, but they also grow a lot of organic fruits and vegetables called Selva Negra in the mountains of Nicaragua. Uh, and, and they delivered a, a coffee sack of produce, organically grown produce to, I don't know, 25 homes around Managua every Tuesday for $8, Michelle. <laughs> Do you know what it costs me to get a cabbage here in the UAE? If I get, if I get a decent cabbage and it's organic, I think, no, my God, like 18 bucks, like, like 16, 17, 18 dollars you're going to pay for a cabbage here. And you're talking, you couldn't reasonably spend $5,000, my God, for, for not even a nice apartment, just a decent apartment, you're going to pay $5,000 a month in rent here. Wow. And, and, and so that, that's sort of the other end of the expat experience, right? It's a very high-end expat experience, you know, where you are, Abu Dhabi and, and Singapore, Hong Kong. There are other places where people would go. Um, but the developing world, uh, prices certainly and cost of living is certainly a, you know, a factor. I mean, that, that's interesting. A cabbage is, you know, 16, 18 bucks. And, and we got more fruits and vegetables than a family of four could eat in a week for, for $8. And, and right. I mean, we had, I mean, all the hormone free, uh, eggs and cheeses and meats. It was, it was just incredible. And it was so inexpensive. It was silly. And I think that's a big reason that so many folks from the United States and Canada are looking, not just looking, I mean, they're doing it. People are moving to Mexico or moving to Costa Rica, Panama, uh, Nicaragua, not so much. Nicaragua has got a perception problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, Costa Rica yeah. is absolutely overrun. You're, you're as likely to run into a North American, you know, an American as you are someone who's actually born and raised there. Correct. C correct. I, I've seen some numbers. The numbers are all over the place. Anywhere from fifty thousand to four hundred thousand expats in Costa Rica. It's a huge range. They don't. They don't have any way to measure it. I, I'm. I'm going to say that the number is probably between a hundred and hundred fifty thousand expats in Costa Rica from the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, uh, in, in a population of a country of how big? Five million. Yeah, that's right. Pretty crazy. <laughs> You're talking five ten for five percent or something like that of the population yeah. are going to yeah, be. Correct are going to be uh, American or Canadian expats living there. That's right. And, and you know, and, and, and one of the things that people don't really think about, we were talking about weather before we, you know, came live as well. And, 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 and I was surprised to hear that, you know, that Abu Dhabi's got temperatures of, what did you say, 19 at night and 25 in the day? Yeah, you know, right seven. around there. Like, people seem to think because I live in the Middle East, it's all, you know, blistering hot all year round well people first of all think that i live in baghdad i don't know why i say the middle east and they seem to think it's a war zone i'm like my goodness right. the uae is arguably the safest country on planet earth um, right. you know it's one of the wealthiest countries in the world there's i pretty much never heard of violent crime or theft or anything like that and uh yeah we get eight months of just spectacular weather here perfect blue skies you know, yeah, 16, 17 degrees at night and 24 degrees 
during the day. So you wear a t-shirt, you wear a sweater, you wear slacks, you wear shorts. It doesn't really matter. You're right in that perfect zone. Yep. And, and, you know, and, and, and again, people don't same thing about, you know, the central America, you could be on the coast of Costa Rica you know, on the Caribbean side where it's hot and humid. You can be like a, a Houston kind of weather. You could be on the Pacific side in the Guanacaste area. And it's much more like Southern California. It's hot and dry where you can be up in the mountains in the central Valley uh, where it's that same kind of whatever, you know, 15 to 20 at night, you know, 25 to 30 in the day, every day of the year. So it's kind of like that always springtime weather. So you, you've got incredible climate types, incredible geographies throughout the region that that create you know, a real, I don't know, a, a real plethora of opportunities from a, you know, a, a weather and climate perspective for North American retirees. And then you start to layer on the, the cost of living, right? The rents, the rent, rent, I mean, I can't even imagine paying $5,000 a month for rent. I mean, maybe in Costa Rica, maybe on the Papagayo Peninsula where the Four Seasons Hotel is, you could find some place to spend $5,000 a month. You know, yeah, but it's not a two-bedroom apartment. You're probably looking at like an entire villa. and Yes, 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 you know, right? Um so, uh, yeah, from an affordable. And then the other thing that I find, it, it certainly has been important to me and our business, but I think it's also important to a lot of the expats, is this uh, same-ish time zone, right? If you're from Vancouver and you move to, you know, uh, uh, Fortaleza, Brazil, that, that is four or five time zones, and that, that's about as much as you can get. But generally, the time zones north-south are, are one or two time zones. So if you're from Toronto and you move to Costa Rica – you're one time zone off. And so from a travel perspective, it's, it's a lot easier. You don't get zonked with the, with the time zone changes. But also, because now, I mean, we, we are connected. It's so easy to be connected back home. I mean, we're, well, you're in Abu Dhabi, and I'm sitting in Fort Worth today, and we're doing an interview, right? I mean, the, the technology has just made it so easy. But it's 5 o'clock in the evening for you, and it's, you know, 8, 8.30 in the morning for me. And 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 that's okay, but, boy, if, it, if you wanted to do an interview – you know, much earlier, it'd be too early for me or much later. So mm -hmm. like that north-south time zone for people staying in touch with family and friends back home tends to be almost unspoken or forgotten or assumed, but it's uh, but it's a big one. And, and, and I think that that's one that we see why a lot of people take the north-south route. I mean, obviously, there are some uh, Americans and Canadians headed off to Phuket, Thailand, or, or you know, Chiang Mai and other places, or, or you know, Abu Dhabi and uh, but the vast majority tend to run north south. I think for the for the time zone reason more than anything else, and and probably cultural familiarity too. That, that I would that, definitely that, agree that the cultural familiarity. I think it makes sense when you start looking at places like the Middle East. Like I said, it's just it's it's just too far removed. It's so different for a lot of people, and Thailand as well. Although I love Thailand with all of my heart, it is quite a different place, especially as a there. first time expat. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But you've mentioned some really interesting things like, yes, we talk about the weather, but this is not just some, you know, water cooler discussion. Like this is where we're really discussing where you're living your life. Like when I hear people complain about, you know, the snow or shoveling your driveway or any of this type of stuff, it's like, well, move. Like if you if you hate it so much, like why don't you just move? Like there's, there's no law that says that you need to live. Like I'm from southwestern Ontario. I grew up with four feet of snow on the ground. I hated it. So I left, like I left when I was 19, you know, 17, 18, 19, I was boom, I was out the door. I knew it wasn't for me. 
I knew at that age, why are people staying there till they're 30, 40, 50, 60? Why do they spend their entire life there? Because it doesn't make sense to me. You know, like people have options and things are a lot easier today than ever before. If you don't like where you live, find somewhere new. A lot of times you'll have skills that will be very, you know, maybe quite common where you live, where you grew up, but you move to somewhere that's a developing country and those skills can really help the economy. They can really help the country grow and prosper and they'll pay you for that, you know, and you actually can live this really uh, amazing life with all those types of benefits that you've just spoken about and it's nice weather and it's not as expensive and you have more freedom. Like, seems like a no-brainer to me. It does, Mikkel, and, and, and I've also often just kind of pondered that question, why don't people move if they're unhappy where they are? You know, and, and, and I guess a couple things, I, I, I hmm, you know, I, I don't know this to be absolutely true, but, but in the Middle Ages, I've heard, I've read, right, that almost nobody ever traveled more than a mile from their village, right? I mean, like, they lived their whole life in a tiny little village somewhere and, and, and never traveled anywhere. And, and I, I think that's still, maybe that's human. I'm not sure, tribal or something. It's, it's probably deep in our DNA because in the U.S., prior to the uh, 2011 and the Patriot Act uh, being enacted, uh, only 10% of the U.S., roughly 10% of the U.S. population had a passport. And we're not talking about living somewhere else. We're just simply talking about visiting somewhere else. One in 10, only one in 10. Now, you know, in order to go to Canada or Mexico or take a cruise, you got to have a passport, right? And I think the number's headed up towards 25%. It's just a, maybe it's 22, 3, 4%. I can't remember. But let's call it 25%, one in four, right? But even today, the converse of that is that three quarters of the people, 75% of Americans don't have a passport to even travel outside of their, you know, their, their home country. And, and I don't, I don't get it. You don't get it. And, and probably most of the people that we mix with don't get it because we tend to you know, mix with other expats and folks who are maybe a little bit more adventurous and, and, and searching out you know, different and new things. But um, um, I wonder that. I ponder that. But, you know, I, I don't have any good answer. That's probably too either too philosophical or too anthropological <laughs> for my brain. I don't know. Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, I do coaching and consulting with small businesses and people who want to more take their business and make it more international. They want to take their life and make it more international. Sometimes I get on a call with someone and they don't have a first passport, like let alone me trying to set up a structure where we can get you a second passport. Let's just first focus on getting your original passport so that we can actually get you overseas and start you traveling. Let's put all the investments, the offshore structures, the business, the trust, everything like that on the side. Let's start with the really easy stuff. Let's get that small win. Let's get you a passport. Come on. It is incredible, isn't it? All right. You just, you just kind of like, huh? Right. It just, you know, I, I remember we did a, a mission when we first moved to Nicaragua, a group of uh, nursing students, but they're doc they're getting their doctorate in nursing. Uh, came to Nicaragua, and we did this medical fact-finding mission on the Rio Coco, which is the river that separates Nicaragua from Honduras, and 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 it was unbelievable. I mean, we drove eight, nine, ten hours, I can't remember, all day to get to the river, the end of the road, and then we jumped in these dugout canoes with, I don't know, 20, 25 nursing students and then a few other people with, like, the health ministry and the uh, Organization for American States, the OAS, and we went downriver for uh, the next morning. We got up and went downriver a whole day. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, 
and and I can remember uh, uh, I, my wife and, and and I guess at the time two and a half year old daughter. Our job was to basically entertain the families and the kids while these nursing students did this health analysis uh, as part of their doctoral program, but also for the Ministry of Health in Nicaragua. And and w one of the things we did was we gave out uh, Amanda and Carol and I we gave out toothbrushes to people. And this is what's incredible. They had no idea what a toothbrush was, nor how to use it, right? And, 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 and so like this whole idea of getting somebody a passport, it's just so basic. You and I go, wait a minute, you don't have a passport and you're talking about an, an, an international business, right? I, I, sometimes we just have to really step back and, and know that like we don't know what we don't know. And we don't know how basic it is sometimes for some people who have never stepped out at all right uh, you know that's a that's a that's a that's foreign to me i mean as as i mean for me to go live in nicaragua is not foreign if i had to come live in abu dhabi or move to chiang mai tomorrow i'd be like okay i mean that would not be foreign but this idea of not having a passport that's foreign to me i don't know it's it's kind of I, 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 we're odd birds out. Let me tell you that. Mikhail. Oh, well, there's no the doubt about that. Like I've been traveling and living as an expat for 20 years. You know, I've been to a hundred yeah. countries. I know yeah. that's not normal. Like, uh, you know, I think it's part of the reason that I don't go back to Canada. I can't have conversations with the people that I Wait. went to high school with and stuff. It's like, you know, they're still dating the same girl that they met, uh, you know, when we were 16 years old and, you know, maybe they've got, been on a vacation down to Mexico, but that's about as far as it's going to go. You know, and like I start talking about my trips to North Korea or Iran or, you know, going through Zimbabwe and driving around Africa and stuff like, you know, that doesn't make sense to them. You know, it's it's basketball and baseball and hockey. Yeah, there we go. I live over here. I'm thinking like cricket and, uh, you know, field hockey oh, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing you mentioned and, and I have a I have a whole presentation I give on this, uh, depending on the, the conference. I speak at a lot of conferences and. And one of the presentations I give is about this concept of time machine and path of progress, because you mentioned it when you started into this topic of, of you know, people moving overseas uh, who are entrepreneurial, you're setting up their businesses. You know, if you move to a developing country, depending on where you move, I just use Central America as a, a simple example because I'm most familiar with it. If you go to Costa Rica, you're, you're getting in a time machine and maybe you're setting the dial back you know, five, 10 years, you're not setting the dial back very far. If you go to a country like Nicaragua, like you're setting the dial back 20, 25 years. And what's really cool about this is, you know, hindsight's 2020. If, if we know the path of progress, now, again, the, the old disclaimer, you know, history and past performance is no indicator of the future, right? But, but if you've watched countries go through this development process for 20, 30 years, it's, it's empirical, right? And, you know, and, and, You've seen it. You know this happens. Then generally this happens. Then generally this happens. And 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 I'll give you a great example in Belize right now. You know the the market has the tourism market has gone from being a uh, niche market, fishermen, fly fishermen specifically, fly fishermen, deep sea fishermen, some, and scuba divers, right, staying in okay accommodations because the only thing they really cared about was getting out in the water yep. uh, to more of a mass tourism, right? Now we're seeing Southwest Airlines opened up, WestJet out of Canada opened up a couple of years ago to bring in sort of the mass tourist consumer. But what hasn't happened, what is actually, it is actually happening right now is this evolution of product 
from the niche person who sleeps in a bunkhouse because all they care about is getting out and fly fishing all day to hotel product that would be right for a mass market. And so uh, there's a uh, Hilton, uh, there's a Curio by Hilton that just opened up at the beginning of this year. It's the first brand name hotel on the island of Hamburgers Key, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Marriott autograph under construction. And then our company is developing a Marriott residence and resort product. So there are now, you know, there's one Hilton open and two Marriott's in development uh, on this island of Ambergus Key. But what's interesting is, is that this is, this is, this is what happens as a market goes from niche to mass. And, and Nicaragua really hasn't seen that process yet on the beaches. Costa Rica, there's four seasons, JW Marriott, Weston Resorts. I mean, you got, you know, you got everything on on the coast, right? In Panama, uh, they're a little bit behind Costa Rica from a tourism perspective. From a business perspective, they're probably far ahead of Costa Rica. But from a tourism perspective, and so if you can, if your listeners, if you're if you're listening to this interview and you have products, so, so I, I, here's here's the tip of the day, uh, Mikel, for your listeners. Okay, <laughs> the first person, the first person who opens up a Dairy Queen in in Costa Rica or Panama or Nicaragua is going to knock it out of the park. I mean, it, the, the, those countries are ready for a Dairy Queen. Sounds crazy. I mean, they already have McDonald's, Burger King, Quiznos, Subway, right? There's no Dairy Queen. And so many Central Americans especially have lived in the States. Many of them grew up in the States, right? They homes both places. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it, this path of progress idea, that I like to call it the time machine because I think it's a much better visual. You know, it, it, it truly, if, if, if you and I could jump in a time machine right now, Mikel, and go back 20 years, pick a number, and we only had one check with us, right? I think both of us would come back to the present moment far wealthier if we had one check, make one investment 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Hindsight's 2020. And so when you get into the developing world, whether it's in you know Central or South America, whether it's in Asia, uh, I don't know your part of the world, the, the, you know, the, the Arab Middle East world very well at all. But I'm sure these kinds of path of progress opportunities, these time machine opportunities exist. And so for your listeners, for, for the folks that you're serving in a business capacity, helping them set up their businesses or explore for opportunities, there are incredible path of progress, time machine opportunities uh, out there, just like we started our little mortgage company. I mean, the mortgage company wasn't something we went down there thinking, oh, let's, let's go to Belize and start a mortgage company. We went down there. We saw a need. Uh, we saw an unfulfilled need, to be very specific, and we figured out how to serve it. Uh, so th there are incredible opportunities, but but you have to be boots on the ground. I, I I believe that you can go with an idea, but you know be open to the fact that it, it may or may not be a good idea, or there may be better ideas that that you know dovetail to your experience or your uh, investment kind of focus. Uh, that you wouldn't necessarily know ahead of time. Boots on the ground, be there, listen, watch, you know, smell, taste, live, experience for a while. And in most cases, opportunities do present themselves if you have an entrepreneurial open mind. And, and, and I'm sure you've seen that in, in your business. Well, absolutely. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head there because people spend so much time, they go to school, they study, and I'm all I'm all for education. I, I prefer more self-education than uh, institutional. But you need to be out there. You need to be 
looking at things and have new experiences and have a variety of experiences. Because like you just said, like an entrepreneur solves problems. That's, that's what an entrepreneur does. And you went down there just to check things out. You saw a hole in the market and you decide to fill it. Like that's an entrepreneur. You didn't go down there and go, okay, I'm going to start a mortgage company. And you were rigid in your thought, you know, who knew that that was what was needed until you actually got there, till you actually had your feet on the ground, till you were talking to the people who were living their lives there. So that's why I always encourage people to get out there in the world. Don't stay in your little bubble. Don't stay in your little town. Just because you're born in one country doesn't mean you need to spend your whole life there. Like, seriously. Right. Yep. And and if you're out with an open mind, uh, opportunities will present themselves, especially uh, especially in the developing world, but but probably even in the developed world as well. Um, you know, I, I remember as a kid uh, traveling around Europe with my parents, and we would bring I don't know three four jars of peanut butter. We'd go for six weeks. My dad would teach in Salzburg every summer, and we'd bring three or four big jars of peanut butter with us. You couldn't get peanut butter in Europe. That's developed world, right? So somebody now you can. Somebody figured that out and started selling peanut butter to to Europe, right? So. There are opportunities even in the developed world that just probably not as obvious or not as inexpensive to engage. I think that that may be it, though, right? One of the big advantages of working in the developed world or in the developing world, sorry, is that you know you can enter the marketplace with a lot less capital. We started our mortgage company with a couple million dollars, right? I mean, then we added another million and a half maybe before we turned it into a bank. But again, you know, th- three million bucks, right? To to start a mortgage company and then start a bank. Uh, in fact, the, the, it's interesting. The capital requirements at the time to start a bank uh, were three million dollars. I mean, yeah. I don't I'm, try to do that in the states right now. <laughs> right? Right? You you yeah. wouldn't even make it in the front door. Like, no, no, no. You need three million dollars just for your lawyers. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> But it's interesting to hear the growth of somewhere like Central America because I went backpacking, and it's it's funny that you mentioned peanut butter. I went backpacking through Central America in right. 2003, and I spent 18 months through Central and South America. And it was me, my tent, uh, a sleeping bag, and a jar of peanut butter. And I had right. no money. I had nothing. I was like teenager, and I just wanted to get out there and see the world. Like I wasn't going to let anything stand in my way, let alone money, you know, get out there and, and see what what's going on, you know, 20 years later, and I'm still traveling like crazy. So we never yeah. know where things are going to take us. No, we don't. Uh, you still carry your peanut butter with you? <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, I live a slightly, mu- <laughs> slightly more luxurious life. I, I've retired the tent, at least yeah. for now. But Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book.
So with your experience of living in Central America, what have you seen the trends with Americans moving down there? Like, what are they looking for? What, what, what has become really common and really uh, accepted, you would say? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. The, probably the, the biggest element we're seeing is people moving. Uh, actually, what we're seeing is people buying before they move. And we'll talk about moving later, but let me just talk about sort of that, the first step. And the first step is, is property acquisition. And what we've really seen is people who are now early baby boomers. I, I'm, I was born in 64, so I'm the last year of the baby boomer, I guess, depending on who's measuring it. But but in many, whatever, 64, I, that's what I was born. So I'm, I'm the last of the baby boomers. Anyway, the uh, the folks who are buying property now are sort of the uh, the, the, the baby boomers who were born maybe, you know, 55 to 64, they're in their, they're in their fifties, early sixties. They're anticipating a retirement South of the border and they're buying something that they will use as a vacation property, presumably, and, or use as an investment property. They'll rent it when they're not there. And so what we're really seeing throughout the region, by and large, the vast majority of the property acquisitions tend to be a pre- pre-use purchase uh, right now. Uh, obviously, we have people who are coming and, and, and maybe a third of the folks who own a property with us actually use it either snowbird six months out of the year or full time. So about a third of the folks are actually true consumers of the product in, in our, in our uh, communities that we build. Uh, that's probably not true across the board. It's probably less than that. It's maybe 15 or 20% of the buyers are true consumer, current consumer product. Uh, so, you know, whatever, 60, 70, 80 percent of the acquisitions of property are in anticipation of use and or investment property. And what that really means, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because properties can either be built for rental or they can be built for use. Uh, and, and, and this was actually why we started the development company, because what we saw uh, and again, going back to Ambergus Key Belize in the you know mid to late 90s uh, was there was a ton of product on the water that was, you know, condo hotel kind of product. And, and, and if you went for a week to use it as a vacation or you rented it out to vacationers, you don't really care how big the closets are. You don't care if there's a pantry in the kitchen uh, because you're probably going to eat out. You, know, you may have some breakfast in the fridge or whatever, but you weren't living in the unit. But once people started living in the units and we, we talked to a lot of people who had bought condo product, and, and we would hear the same complaint. This is sort of that entrepreneurial thing. We'd hear the same complaints over and over again. The kitchen is really tiny. There's no place for me to store stuff. I don't have a washer and dryer. Right? I mean, it was just these kind of over and over and over again comments. And, and so we thought to ourselves, my goodness, why don't we build condo product that's residential? Because here's the reality, Mikkel. If you put nicer closets, bigger closets, maybe a pantry in the kitchen, expand the kitchen a little bit, yeah, you've increased the cost of the condo because you've increased the square footage a little bit. Maybe some of the you know fit out was a little bit more, but maybe you've increased the price by five thousand or ten thousand dollars. Not very much on a two hundred thousand dollar condo. But what you've really done is you've given somebody a product that is residential or residential ready. Because if you're a vacationer and you come down, you don't care if the closets are you know big or small because you're living out of your suitcase, and you don't really care if the pantry in the kitchen you know, is big or small because you're probably eating out. But the day that it goes from being, you know, vacation to residential, you care a great deal. 
And so what we did as a company is we came in and we said, here's an opportunity to build residential ready product, which is what we've done. And 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 the marketplace has rewarded. I in fact I'm you know with a third of our folks who are owner resident owners, uh, you know, it's higher than the the overall percentage because I think when people are really ready to move or or snowbird uh, in in many cases, you know they're looking for residential ready product and there's not a lot of it uh, just because the people are building condo hotel rather than you know residential condos. So that was a differentiator that we found important in the marketplace. But the, but the buyers, by and large, two-thirds roughly to three-quarters are people who are buying in anticipation of a future need and in the meantime using it for rental, vacation, property. Uh, and, 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 it's, you know, it, and, and here's an interesting – you're Canadian. Uh, you know, round numbers, the population of Canada is 35 million. The population of the U.S. is 350 million. It's you know, 10 to 1. But what's interesting from a trend standpoint is that Canadians in our market that, that we can measure anyway, uh, our customers or or you know colleagues, customers, we, we swap a lot of information. I'm a big believer in you know colleague competitors as well, and we swap the information. Canadian buyers tend to be about 20% of our business and most of our colleagues' business. So you know the Canadian market is twice what it quote unquote should be based on a population U.S. to Canadian at, at 10%. So uh, you know, just like you got tired of the snow, uh, you know, shoveling snow in Southwest Ontario, uh, you know, a lot of folks in Canada just are, are just, just done with it, right? So they're they're moving south. Now, I, I was just in Phoenix speaking to the uh, uh, Phoenix area uh, real estate uh, commission, not commission, sorry, uh, association, and you know, there are a lot of Canadians who ended up in Arizona and Florida, right? And, but but more and more people are, are taking what I would call the, the longer flight, and they're ending up in Mexico, the Caribbean, Belize, Costa Rica, Panama, for the affordability, uh, but also for, for that adventure. I think there's there's a real sense of uh, when, when people start to, you know, think about retirement, and they've, they've had that, you know, sort of solid, steady life, a lot of people are looking for something a little bit more adventurous. And 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 you can get that when you just fly over the U.S. and 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 land, you know, a little further south of the border uh, for you all. And and for folks in the U.S., it is south of the border, right? We're headed to Mexico, Central and South America, the Caribbean. So the tr the, the trends really are for a pre a pre buy. Uh, and and what that what that also means is that you know if you're buying in the path of progress, you're probably going to see property appreciation. Uh, and if you end up leaving your properties in rental, your, your acquisition cost is is X. But as the market matures, you know the average daily rate, the ADRs increase because you know supply and demand, and the place becomes more popular. So people who bought condos in Costa Rica 20 years ago for 150 thousand dollars, you know they might be getting you know three four hundred dollars a night, whereas back when they bought it, they were getting a hundred dollars a night, right? But their cost of acquisition is the same. It was one hundred, you know, one hundred fifty thousand dollars for the condo, but yet they're getting two, three times the uh, the average daily rate on their on their rentals now. So th there's a big advantage of if, if if you're buying in anticipation of a future use, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years from now, and you can you can see this time machine, you can put yourself into a product that's you know up and coming because you've got time for it to up and come. You've got the wait time. If you're 67, 8, 9, 70 years old, you're probably buying for a more you know current use, whether it's a year from now or two years from now. Then you're, you're probably buying something that's already kind of up and come 
to, to, the, to the point where you want the level of services and amenities that are pr- present in that marketplace. So do you think it's a lot of these boob- baby boomers are looking at Social Security, looking at pensions or 401ks or whatever they have in place and looking at it and going, this is not going to be enough to sustain my lifestyle living in Washington, living in California, living in you know New York, places like this. And they move down to Central and South America so that they can keep that same type of lifestyle at a fraction of the cost? Yes, we definitely see that. We, in fact, we market to that significantly. And I do a, a ton of writing on that topic. In fact, I just wrote the, the beginnings of an article uh, that I'll publish in a couple of weeks uh, on that same topic. Because, yeah, and, and, and what's, what's really hard, and, and I use a couple I use a couple. Uh, very powerful, I call it videos, right? That, or not video, visual images. One is the is the Mobius strip, right? People are always like, you know, like how can I move overseas and have a lower cost of living and a higher quality of life? That, that's a paradox, right? How, how, how is that even possible? And I always say, well, have you ever seen the Mobius strip? It's a one-sided piece of paper. People go, oh, you're full of it, Cobb. What are you talking about? There is no such thing as a one-sided piece of paper. But there is. It's a Mobius strip, and you Google it, and sure enough, it's, it's a, you know. And Asher did a great Mobius strip with some ants crawling around it. I don't know if you've ever seen that one, Mikkel, but it's a, it's fun. Uh, MC Asher ant Mobius strip is a great, great visual. But uh, and, and the other one is those nine dots, right? You make a, a square with you know three, 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 and and you say, all right, four lines. You can't lift your pencil. Straight lines connect all the dots. And people will sit there and just like rack their brains and try to do it and do it and do it. But the only way you can do it is to go outside the, the square, right? You've got to go outside the box. And, and and so I use those two examples in a lot of my writing or a lot of my presentations because it's it's important for people to understand that you really can have a higher quality of life and it will cost less. It just doesn't, it just doesn't seem right because in the States and in Canada, it, it, higher quality of life generally means spending more. Uh, but when you go to a developing country or the developing world, uh, you know, that bag of groceries for, for, you know, that bag of organic produce for $8, a, a full-time made for two to $300 a month. Uh, you talk about quality of life enhancements that, that cost, you know, a fraction of what they would cost in North America. So, so I, I do feel like a man on a mission sometimes with this idea because I, I've got to say, I, I've, I've written to this, I speak to this, and, and I firmly believe that I feel sorry for people who can't see outside the box because here's what's going to happen. If, if the average uh, Social Security payment in the U.S. right now is, I think it's $1,387, right? $1,387. And, 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 and those people, depending on where they live, if they live in the northern part of the United States, $1,387 – I'm guessing at some point they are going to have to choose between buying their medicine and paying for the heat in their home in the winter. Uh, maybe not. I mean, I, I hope not. But but I think many of them are going to face very, very, very difficult choices in retirement living on $1,300, $1,400 a month. That's the average. I mean, that's the average. That means there's a lot of people getting less than that, right? So, you know, it, I, I feel like a man on a mission because if we can help folks understand that there is this other possibility. There is this other world where they can go have a higher quality of life. They can have a great quality of life on $1,300, $1,400 a month. And, and, and to me, that's significance. I mean, I hate to get philosophical, but, 
But there, there's a great book called Halftime by Bob Buford, and he writes about this transitional moment in life when people can you know, move from a success-based model, which is success is what we do for ourselves, for our families, the accumulation of, of wealth and assets, to a significance-based lifestyle, right? And significance is what we do for others. And, 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 and I don't know that they're mutually exclusive and, and the book kind of doesn't say that either, but, but it kind of says, you know, you kind of move from one to the other. I actually like the integration of both and they're sort of an outside the box thought too. I, I find that being able to be significant in our business lets us be successful because, you know, to the extent that we are successful in, in, in showing people alternative ways, it's outside the box, it's higher quality of life, lower cost of living. And we can help people who are on fixed income, whatever that number is, a thousand, thirteen hundred, you know, two thousand dollars a month. We can help those people see that there are opportunities for them outside of, you know, outside the box, outside their hometown, outside their home state, country, and 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 find a higher quality of life without probably some very difficult choices that they would have to make otherwise. That's significance because we've we've changed their lives in in very positive and powerful ways, uh, and. And and that feels good, right? Significance feels good internally. We we like when we we help others. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, a true business. Uh, you know, Zig Ziglar, a great sales coach and sales trainer, had, had a wonderful line, and 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 it's sort of my foundational mantra. It's if we help enough other people get what they want, we can have what we want. And for me, helping people to see that there are opportunities outside what they can currently see to live within a limited budget, a limited means on social security pension uh, is, is highly significant. And, and it's, it's also foundational for the success of, of our company to date. And I think even more so going forward as, as more and more baby boomers, you know, kind of hit that realization wall of, Oh my gosh, I didn't save enough. I mean, I can't remember the stats on that, but baby boomers just simply haven't saved enough. Almost none of them have 20, I think it's 20, 2%, 23%, I'm close on that. Like only a quarter, less than a quarter of baby boomers have saved enough to have those funds kind of last throughout their expected actuarial lifestyle. Three quarters of them have not. And and and, and I think it's half of baby boomers have less than $20,000 of savings. So like they are going to be dependent upon social security or other pension items. And when that reality hits, when they, when they smack into that wall, you know, if we're there, if we've put the word out and we've helped folks understand that there are better alternatives, uh, different alternatives, uh, that, that will be a wonderful thing for them and, and for us. So, uh, boy, I got on a soapbox there, Mikhail. I'm sorry. I... <laughs> but, but I'm, no, because I, I, I'm nodding my head. I agree with you. You know, I had um, an amazing guest on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, his name was Ian Bond, and we looked at the – we spoke in depth about Medicare and the problems right. that people are having, you know. And and he said a really funny line, and I thought it was I thought it was kind of cute, was he was saying, you know, the biggest problem we have is that people are living longer, you know. A lot of these – uh, structures that are set up by the government in these pensions, you know, they're put in place for people who are going to be dying at, you know, 65, 70 years old. When you're living right. to 80, 90, you know, in some cases, 100 years old, you know, you break the system. Like, right. so it's no wonder that people don't have enough money saved. Like, you just need to, you need to take the money and you need to expand it for so much longer. Now, I'm I'm not a baby boomer. I'm a, I don't even know what I am, a millennial, I suppose. I think I'm... 
at the very, 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 very beginning of the millennial generation. But I see the, uh, the generations before me and that the problems that they have. And, you know, using your time, time machine reference, I can see into the future and go, okay, if we head down this trajectory, if we head down this path, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. And that's why I work so hard today to prepare myself, to prepare my family and to take care of us, you know, with these types of investments that are going to have that longevity, um, internationalizing my life, making sure that we have the second passport and all these types of things so that I'm not handcuffed to one place, one geographic location, because this, these problems are going to get worse and worse and worse. And the government is not going to look after you, you know, 401k, social security, they're not going to be there for you. Don't rely on the medical system, rely on yourself, you know? Right. And, and that whole idea of self-reliance, I think has been, you know, slowly weaned out of us in the U S I don't know the Canadian market as well. I, my sense of the Canadian uh, folks that I speak with is there's still a much stronger sense of, of, of self-reliance in, 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 in parts of Canada anyway, that, that I, I know a lot of folks, but, but I think even there, you know, in the U S especially it's being weaned out of us and, 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 and the reliance on the government programs uh, is, is scary because they really, yeah, the actuarial tables, people living longer, they weren't designed to, to do this. So I don't, I don't know where that road goes, but I'm glad to hear that you're not on it. And, you know, I'm not on it. And, and, and by the way, your listeners are, are very, very fortunate to, to have you talking about these kinds of things uh, and, and giving them ideas and alternatives. Because, you know, it, it's one thing to understand that, like, in your mind's eye, you say, oh, my gosh, I, you know, Social Security, I, you know, it's going to run out or, or, or Medicare or my 401k or whatever it is, right? That, that's one reality, a, you know, a very harsh one, right? But the second part of that is, what do I do about it? And and so your listeners are very, very fortunate to have you giving them ideas and offers and opportunities to, you know, to, 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 to hear ways to deal with that reality going forward. And, that, and that's a big deal. That, that's significance too, Mikhail. That's real. Well, talk about man on a mission. You know, this is like, I feel like my calling and, and it goes yeah. even further than that. I, I see a lot of people who make it overseas as an expat. They take that, that step and they leave their home country. But because they're not educated, because they didn't do proper research, or maybe they, the resources were not available to them or easily available to them, they end up spending six months a year ab abroad and they end up having to go home. You know, they don't integrate themselves into the, the, the city or the country, the culture. They don't have the money set aside. The, the structure, their visas, everything like this is not done correctly. And they end up having right. to go home. And, you know, for me, that is heartbreaking. Like, I... I can't think of anything worse in the world. Like I, I really, I feel for these people, you know, they worked and they saved and they went overseas and they had this dream of something in their head, but because they didn't do it, they didn't have the education. I don't even know what it is. Yeah. It doesn't work out, you know? So I try to be there and help people before they make that step or even for the people who are overseas already and they want to change countries or they want to move their business. They want to take things to the next level. You know, how does that look? You know, like a simple Google search and reading a blog article is probably not going to do it. Watching, you know, six minute YouTube videos, probably not going to do it. Having a conversation with someone who's done it before multiple times. Well, you know, maybe that's a much better step in the right direction. Yep, it, it is. And, and, and you're providing that. By the way, I use the word tragedy because I think when people don't make it, it is tragic uh, in, in that true sense of the word. And, 
and and we're on the same page there. You know, one of the things that we've done as an organization is we've actually developed a couple couple tools, right? I don't know what else to call them, but tools for consumers to help them really kind of figure this out. And one of them is what we call our likes and needs survey, right? It's a hundred and some questions that, that, and I'll give you just a couple, I'll give you one example. This is an incredible thing because you're right. People come, they don't quite figure it out ahead of time. And they've watched some videos, maybe they've gone to a conference, you know, and, and, and most people will get what I would call the big things right. And, uh, and I guess I'll give you a couple examples, right? The big thing, one, the weather. Oh, I like the beach. Well, do you, do you like the Pacific Ocean with the big waves? Do you like the Caribbean, right? What, 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 so you can get that right. Or I like the springtime all the time weather, right? That, that 15 at night, 25 in the day kind of weather, right? Okay, people can get that right. But there's a whole subset of questions. And we've come up with about 120 questions. It's a survey that people take. And, and, and one of the questions is this, how close to an English speaking church would you like to live? Now, for some folks living near a church is irrelevant. They're not really particularly religious, right? It doesn't matter to them. For other people, you know, it's very important. But for so many people, that question would never even enter the level of consciousness. So if they're buying a home, say in Medellin, Colombia, Right, which uh, you know, I do a lot of speaking. I speak in Medellin a couple times a year, and it's a wonderful springtime, all the time city in, in Colombia. And and there are a couple English speaking churches in a city of five ish million people. Right, it's a city of five million people, and I think there are two English speaking churches. So if if you know if it's really important for you to have a, a community, a, you know, a, a, a church community around you in English, you probably want to own a home or get an apartment near one of those two churches, right? And so this needs and likes uh, survey that we have goes through and just ask people to think about questions like that, because that's where I think a lot of times, again, people get the big stuff right, but it's the ankle biters that send us home. Mikkel, I've, I've noticed that over the years. It, it was never the big things. It was always the ankle biter stuff that really frustrated people and, and quote unquote, sent them home. Uh, they chose to go home themselves. Nobody sent them home. But, but, uh, and 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 a lot of these questions were developed over the last twenty plus years. You know, as we saw ankle biters, and we said, well, there's one. We should add that to the survey, right? Let's 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 at least get people thinking about that before they make the move and 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 locate themselves. You know, more appropriately to their needs, likes, uh, interests, um, and and. And, and, and that's a very useful tool for, for folks who are looking to move overseas. Uh, and the other is the Consumer Resource Guide. Well, I would love if you would make that resource available to my listeners, maybe at the end of the episode, if you can uh, give us a link or something like that. That sounds really fantastic. Now, we've talked really about the weather and the cost of living and what life looks like there. But in Central and South America, like the big question I think that would pop into a lot of my listeners' head would straight away be about medical facilities and would be about safety. Like, can you talk to me about that kind of insider information about what that looks like, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. So let me say that that I'm going to handle the safety crime thing fairly quickly with a couple just points. Uh, in, in many cases, folks in North America associate poverty with crime. Uh, that that that's maybe largely true in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, it's not true in Central or South America. Uh, I mean, there are 
crime needs crime and location need to be thin sliced. Uh, you know, it, it, there are neighborhoods in every city that are great neighborhoods. There are neighborhoods in in every city that are that are bad neighborhoods. And and so uh, getting you know getting good sense of that ahead of time. It's one of the reasons we we recommend people rent before they buy. Right? You go somewhere, you rent for three to six months. You get a feel for the city, the communities, the neighborhoods. Then you can place yourself into some place that's you know that that's safe to the level of safe that you want. Um, you know, we we lived in Managua, Nicaragua. Uh, for for 14 years and and never had one incident uh, of of any kind of violent crime. I think we had a few petty theft. Uh, our I believe it or not, our security guard stole my pants off the clothesline. I think that was our you know, biggest <laughs> <laughs> that was our biggest you know theft, right? But but uh, uh, you know it, it, so it, safety safety is is really not an issue. Uh, it, 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 it it's the same issue as it would be in any. U.S. or Canadian city, in the sense of there are some places you don't want to go. There are other places that are fine to go, and if you you know if you, you know, figure that out fairly quickly and it's common sense, then you're going to be as safe as you want to be. And and the other thing is if you know I, I always say that if you know I was in a, I was home in bed by you know ten eleven o'clock every night, and you know I mean I think if you're home in bed by ten or eleven o'clock at night, you're probably not going to run into trouble. And, you know three in the morning. There's trouble out there. You can go run into it if you want to. So th- those those would be my comments about but crime and well, safety. And in a lot of times, like you said, you had a security guard. So I'm guessing that you were in some type of a gated community or something like that. We were. But here's the interesting thing, Mikhail. Literally, we had a wall. It was a gated community. And to drive in, you had to you know pass through a guard, right? But um, the, the wall behind my house was, I don't know, six and a half. It wasn't seven feet tall. I mean, you know, I'm 5'8", and it was just slightly over my head. So a six and a half foot high wall. We didn't have wire. We didn't have anything on the top of it. So you didn't um, feel like you were a prisoner or anything like that. And on the other side was a very poor neighborhood of, you know, cement block homes with tin roofs. And, and like, we never had any issues. I'm just, that's, a, that's what's incredible to me, right? People think, oh, safety and crime. And like, like anybody could have gotten over that wall anytime they wanted Except me, I probably couldn't have gotten over. <laughs> but 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 anyone who wanted to go over that wall could have gotten over that wall. So, I think the crime and safety—it's a thin slice thing. Stay out of the three bad neighborhoods in a city, uh, and and be home at a reasonable hour. And but and that's you, advice you, anywhere. Like that's advice for Detroit. That's advice for Los Angeles. Like, yep, you got it. I think it's the same advice. I don't think the advice changes. Anywhere in the world, probably. Um, you know, you mentioned healthcare, and, I, and I'll mention on the healthcare front. You know, it, 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 depending on, and this is part. By the way, this likes and needs survey. Yes, I don't actually have a link, but I'll, I'll give folks an email address. They can email and just put in the subject line, you know, likes survey or preferences survey or something. And I'll get the the the, the link sent over. But the um, but the uh, uh, the issue on on medical care, because uh, some of the questions in this survey have to do with it. Hey, look, if you live in northern Ontario, and I've been fishing up in northern Ontario, like you're hours from any kind of medical facility when you're way up there, you know, in God's country, or if you're from Manitoba or something. Or, I mean, you can be rural in Canada. You could be rural in Montana, North Dakota. I mean, you could be rural in Pennsylvania, you know. I mean, so if you live in a rural area in North America, and you're an hour from great medical care, well, you know what? If, if you're comfortable with that, you can live an hour or two hours or whatever you want 
from great medical care in the developing world. But every one of these cities, whether it's Managua with a JCI, Joint Commission International, gold-accredited hospital, with a burn center that is used by most countries of Central America. They fly people into this burn center. It is a world-class hospital. Panama has the Johns Hopkins facility in Panama City. Uh, the SEMA system in Costa Rica is phenomenal. The Mexican healthcare facilities are world-class. I mean, they do medical tourism. They, they do transplants and stuff like that in Mexico and many of these hospitals. So medical care is available. It's phenomenal. It's inexpensive. Uh, and and that's, I'm not making a broad statement. If you're outside the major cities, uh, you're going to have you know much less uh, in terms of medical you know technology and, and and medical care. But that's true in the U.S. and Canada as well as you move from your major cities out into your rural areas. So part of the likes and needs survey helps people identify how important is you know sort of that uber high tech awesome medical care to them. For some people, it, it's really important. And for other people, it's it's a lot less important, uh, especially for folks who have come from a rural area uh, in North America where they haven't had access to the you know world class facility, the Mayo Clinic or something right around the corner. So uh, th that that's a personal question. Uh, there is great medical care throughout the region, uh, but it, you just kind of have to figure out how close to it you want to locate yourself. Uh, and it's very easy if you say, look, I. Uh, you know, I want to live right next to the Johns Hopkins facility in Panama City. No problem. You can live three blocks away for for fifteen hundred dollars a month in a beautiful a beautiful apartment looking over the Pacific Ocean, right? So if that's important to you, put yourself there. If you say, well, nah, I, you know, I don't care so much. I mean, you live up in the mountains somewhere and be an hour and a half away from the, uh, you know, from the from that hospital. So I don't know. I hope I hope that answered the question. Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Because and I don't want to make a broad statement here, but a lot of people, when they think developing nation, they they don't think that they have world class hospitals. They don't think that this is even an option. Like it's it's not even possible. They have to fly back to the states. They would have to fly back to Canada or to Europe or wherever they might be from. But actually, a lot of these places, there's still fantastic facilities and. Getting a treatment done there is a fraction of the cost if you're paying for it yourself, and you can still have insurance and everything like that. Yep, and 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 let me comment on on the insurance real quick because I think that's a pretty important point too. Uh, we used a company called Bupa uh, out of uh, Miami, Florida, and they they do expat policies. And so if you're an expat, you can buy this Bupa B U P A. Uh, uh, I don't get paid by them or anything like that. I'm just a really was a really really happy customer. Uh, they took great care of us for 14 years, uh, and and it was so inexpensive. It covered us everywhere in the world, including the United States. So you know, if we needed serious medical care, and I did, I actually had a, a lung issue, uh, and had part of part of one of my lungs taken out. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic um, and had you know this lung surgery, and it was covered by Bupa, right, while living in Nicaragua. On the other hand, um, you know, we had. Uh, plenty of stuff done, procedures and and things like that. Uh, my daughter had her foot operated on in 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 Nicaragua at the JCI uh, Vivian Pellis Hospital. Uh, so th this insurance, uh, this expat insurance, is phenomenal, uh, and and it's very very inexpensive. I think we paid probably a, less than a quarter, I'll say a quarter of what we're currently paying, living back in the U.S. for truly what was better coverage uh, than what I have now. I didn't have in 
network, out of network. I mean, this, this Bupa covered me, you know, everywhere in the world uh, for a quarter of the price of what I'm paying today living back in the U.S. So, uh, and the other thing to remember is a lot of these countries, Medellin, Colombia, they are a medical tourism destination. So not only are people, you know, and not only is there great medical care if you live there, people are actually flying from all over the world uh, to these countries to be treated in these countries because the facilities are world class and the cost is is much, much less. Absolutely. I agree with you. So what I want to do to kind of round this out is talk to you about the logistics. Like how would something like this work if someone wanted to move down to Central America? How do they have their visa structured set up? Um, how does the things like that happen? Well, that's, you know, that's a great question. And one of the first things they should do, uh, and I'm going to plug you right here. I mean, I, you didn't tee this up for me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. They should reach out <laughs> and talk to you. No, really. You said it, Mikhail, you said it before. You said that, that, that they don't get their visas figured out ahead of time. Like they just go somewhere and they're just sort of on autopilot. I don't know. They're not thinking. They, they need to reach out to you uh, or someone like you. But but if they're listening to this podcast, they should reach out to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about moving to you know, X, Y, or Z country, what am I going to need to live there for, you know, a year or two, or what kind of visas or, 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 you know, uh, am I going to need a work visa, right? Because there, there, a lot of times those are two separate things, right? Uh, do they have an investor's visa? Or if they're going on retirement, what's their pensionado or retirement program look like? So a lot of these countries have many different alternatives, depending on the, the reason you're coming and what you want to do when you get there. And, and so talking with someone like you to get that stuff figured out ahead of time, is key. Getting it figured out ahead of time is key. And so you can certainly serve the folks with that kind of information. So I, I, I strongly recommend they do that. Uh, well, that is thing, a first on my show, someone plugging me. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. But, you know, I, it, 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 it's so, it seems so obvious and so simple, but people just kind of jump over that. When they, I get it. They're excited. They, you know, they, we're, we're going to, you know, we're moving to Costa Rica. We're moving to Panama. And, you know, it's like it, it, sometimes you just sort of jump over the stuff that you should take that pause, right? Take a pause and you know, one of the things I mentioned this before, and, it, and it's part of our consumer resource guide, right, is this idea of renting before you buy. To me, renting before you buy, if it's a lifestyle, look, if, if you're buying an investment property, that's different because an investment property is a head decision. You're running the numbers, you're doing analytics, blah, 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 right? It, 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 it's, it's cerebral. But if you're making a lifestyle decision, you're moving somewhere because you think you want to live there or spend a lot of time there, that's a heart decision. That, that, that's affective, right? How does it feel? Do I like my neighbors? Do I like the view out my window, right? It, it has nothing to do with return on investment or numbers or anything. It's, it's affective, it's feeling. And so renting before you buy is critically important because we might know, I'll just pick on Medellin for a minute. I mean, so we might know that we love the city of Medellin, but once if we rent for six months, what we might find out is all of the people we really enjoy spending time with live on the other side of town. And, and so when we get ready to buy, we're going to buy over there so we don't have to sit in 30, 40 minutes of traffic every time we want to go visit our friends, right? So this renting before you buy is sort of the pause on that process. So the pause on the process at the very, very front end is, is talking with someone like you to say, hey, I'm thinking about moving to Costa Rica or Panama. What do I need to do? I, I think I might want to work, so I'm probably going to need a work permit. 
uh, uh, or I'm retired and I'm not, or I might want to start a business. So maybe an investor visa makes the most sense. And so getting that stuff up front, you, you'll save yourself a lot of time, hassle, and probably money too, because if you go in as a retiree and find out what you really want to do is start a business, well, then you might have to you know, backstep. You've already paid for the retiree stuff. You have to backstep and take a whole new path and pay a second time. So a little bit of pause up front, I think, goes a long, long way to getting it right the first time. Sort of the old carpenters uh, saw, which is, you know, measure twice, cut once. So a little bit of pause goes a long, long way in this process. Absolutely. I love it. Well, I think that is a perfect way to end our episode. Mike, thank Perfect. you so much for being on the show. If my listeners, if they want to get that resource that we were talking about, if they want to get a hold of you, where can we send them? You know, e the easiest thing is info at ecidevelopment.com, info at ecidevelopment.com, the general mailbox. If they want to talk with me specifically in the subject line, like, you know, talk with Mike Cobb, that's fine. Uh, if they would like to get a copy of the uh, likes and preferences survey, just likes and preferences survey in the subject line. The other thing we didn't talk about uh, is our consumer resource guide. And it's a, it's the, the 15 questions people should ask when they buy property overseas before they buy property overseas, uh, the consumer resource guide. And then also we have some stuff on uh, you know Panamanian residency and some uh, teak opportunities there that are probably specific to uh, Panama, but, but kind of interesting as well. So anyway, reach out that way. Happy to get in touch with folks and, and connect them with the resources they need to you know, make good decisions or, or just check it out. I mean, they don't have to make a decision. Check it out and see if it's right for them. Excellent. And I'll make sure that I have all those resources at expatmoneyshow.com under the show notes for Mike Cobb's episode. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show. Truly a pleasure. Mikkel, thank you for having me. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies from my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.